Now faith, hope, and love abide these three, and the greatest of these is love. Amen. Paul writes a feisty letter to the church in Corinth, and he calls love the essential precondition for our walk with God and with each other. Paul says love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Love never fails. Now, if I were a gambling man, which I sort of am, I would put good money on the fact that you've heard this at at least 17 weddings. Maybe you even read it at your own. We thought about having it at ours. And to be sure, this Corinthians text celebrates love, which is central as the foundation in marriage. But Paul isn't just writing about romantic love here. He's talking about agape love, which is unconditional love of neighbor as self. It is a self-emptying form of love. This leads us to connection, community, belonging. Love greases the wheels on the rusty caboose called human exchange, allowing us to interpret generously, to assume good in those we meet, to seek the welfare of the city, to care for other people's children like our own, and to use our little corner of the world, leveraging what we have and who we know and where we are to make the world a bit more kind, a bit more just, a bit more beautiful. But love is more than just a sentiment. Love is a way to understand the world. It's, it's a philosophy, a worldview, a set of glasses, if you will. Love changes us. It shows us the way to God because God is love. So let's explore Paul's letter to the Corinthians. The first thing you want to know about this text is that Paul is responding to a problem, even better, a set of problems in the church at Corinth. So how shall I say this diplomatically? The Corinthians are a hot mess. This Mediterranean port town has money up the wazoo, concentrated in the hands of just a few healthy merchants, while itinerant strangers come and go daily. The Corinthians are suing each other in unjust courts, bribing the judges. They're engaged in incest and sexual immorality. They're abusing the communal meal. They're fighting over who is the greatest, specifically with spiritual gifts and superiority. And they're splitting into factions based on which leader they like the best. I think Harry was the best. Oh, no, I think Simon is the best. I thought Jeffrey was the best. Forget it, let's go to the cathedral and St. Luke's and never speak again! <laughs> Granted, Paul likes to make himself the hero of his own sermon illustrations, which is rarely a winning strategy. Did I ever tell you guys about the time I was perfect and correct in every possible way. Maybe try being more like me and you should be all set. But I digress. <laughs> Paul lifts up love as the antidote to the Corinthians' current behavior. Scholar Jerry Irish goes down the list, chapter and verse. Love does not envy, but envy and strife characterize the Corinthians. Love does not boast but the Corinthians do. 
chapter 5, verse 6. Love is not puffed up, but the Corinthians are, chapter 4, verse 6. Indeed, impressive speeches without love sound like a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal, chapter 3, verse 3. So, here's the first idea to remember about this text. Paul is writing to a specific church at a specific place in time. The Corinthians are in a mess fit for a daytime cave, and he's trying to help them be more faithful. In other words, we're reading somebody else's mail. The second idea to consider about this text is the beautiful meditation on agape, unconditional love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Sometimes, as a professional churchgoer, I find myself convicted by a text or a sermon. A few weeks ago, I felt something turn in my heart when Luther Smith asked me to pray for my enemies. Not because it would change them, but because it would change me. Likewise, as I was preparing for this sermon this morning, I found myself savoring this gorgeous meditation on love, as if each line had been scrawled in cursive on beautiful paper and mailed to my house, written for me. I want to know more about this kind of love. I want to know what makes it patient and kind. What helps it not to be envious? How does it not boast? What does it feel like not to be proud or self-seeking? Did you hear that it keeps no record of wrongs? It rejoices in the truth. It takes delight in integrity. This is agape love, shown most visibly for us in God's love for us, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, abundant life indeed. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And so this love indeed has consequences for the living of these days. And that's my third point. Love actually changes how we interact with the world. Love doesn't just top the list of virtues. It is a state of being. Renowned psychiatrist Harry Stack Sullivan says it this way. When the satisfaction or the security of another person becomes as significant as one's own satisfaction or security, then and only then does the state of love exist. When the satisfaction or security of you is as important as my satisfaction and security, then and only then does the state of love exist. We can say we love our neighbor when the good of our neighbor is just as important as the good of ourselves. Your kid's education is just as important as my kid's education. Your drinking water matters as much as my drinking water. I care about your safety as much as I care about my safety. I will give of my money and things so that you have what you need. Paul goes so far as to say that love never ends. 
but everything else will. Everything else will fade away like dust blowing in the wind. Monuments will crumble like the Sphinx in Egypt. Empires will rise and fall like Rome. Great leaders will die like Washington and Lincoln. But love never ends. Paul goes so far as to explicitly tie love, agape, unconditional, self-emptying love, to the completion of God's reign on earth. Through love, all things will be made right, and we will be fully known. This is a radical claim, because Paul is not only saying that these things will come to pass, but this is the specific way they will come to pass, through unconditional love. He illustrates this claim with a metaphor. Now here, a dim mirror. It's helpful to remember that in the ancient world, mirrors were extremely precious, and they were made of polished brass, not the plate glass of today. So he never gets a good look at himself, and nobody else did either. I imagine he looked into the dim mirror, and he was quite self-assured because he never gets his hair quite right because he's too busy fixing other people. But there I go, again, trashing on Paul. He's not even here to defend himself. He does have some reasonable things for us to say and to hear. And he writes, now we see through a mirror dimly, and then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, but then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so the only things that abide in the end are faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. But these are merely words, and we live more powerfully through story. Consider the end game of World War II. As Albania is preparing to surrender to the Nazis, Muslim leaders of the country receive a diplomatic cable from Germany. And please hear the word Muslim. These officials are told to prepare a list of every Jew living in Albania to provide names, addresses, and phone numbers. And by this point, the Muslim leaders know enough to presume that these Jews would die if they were handed over to the Nazis. So the Albanian leadership refuses to comply. They simply do not make the list. They refuse. Then when it becomes clear that their lives are at stake if they continue to refuse, they make a false list, and they send that one to the Nazis. And then the same night, they reach out to the Muslim community in Albania and they say, you are right now to take in your Jewish neighbors. Your food is to become their food. Your beds are to become their beds. Your children are to play with their children. And you will guard them with your lives. All told, the Muslims of Albania save approximately 2,000 Jews from the Nazi death camps. My friends, this is the world of God's dream. Beyond factions, beyond divisions, united in agape, unconditional, self-emptying, radical, world-changing love. Because love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Amen.